Welcome again to the Good Trash Genre Cast, where people gather at a table, whether they want to or not, and discuss a film that you'll never Regardless find. Regardless of how, how much moving they did on the weekend or how much they would rather be playing God of War, they come here. How'd it go in the rain? Oh, it was a fucking shit show. It was real cold and very <laughs> Oh my god, it was a nightmare. I'm, I'm still not warm. You know, I know that we're all going to die of pneumonia. I just didn't know I was going to do so this year. Yeah. yeah, and so anyway, uh, Dalton moved this weekend. That was fun, but we're here to talk about movies that would not find their way into a film stage. Of course, we're doing uh, this marathon of musicals, and uh, this week we're looking at Les Misérables, uh, which is a uh, story about miserable people. And uh, we will uh, talk about all of that great misery here in just a few moments. Before we get any further, though, let's identify the disembodied voices speaking to your brain through your earbuds or speakers of your car, sir. Across the table, who are you? I am Arthur Gordon. And Dalton is a virgin in the light, but needs no urgent in the night. <laughs> oh, no. Ain't that the truth? It is very accurate. Okay, sir. In the light, I do very much resemble a man who has never had sex, so that, <laughs> that checks out. He's very pasty. <laughs> sir, to my right, who are you? My name is Dalton Stewart, and to love another person is to see the face of God. That's very, very true. Uh, my name is Dustin Sells, and uh, look down, look down. You'll always be a slave, unless we do something. But we'll talk more about that anon. That we will. Uh, so we are very, very happy to be discussing this film. Uh, in case you're tuning into the Good Trash Honor Cast for the very first time, you need to know a little bit of the format of what's going on, because this is not a review show. It is oh, not. no. It is an analysis show. And that means that there will be spoilers. So we will talk about what happens to particular characters and their destinies, and whether or not the French Revolution worked out um you might know that one already actually but we, technically the the june rebellion the june rebellion which is the earlier one yeah no the later one the, oh you're correct yeah, yeah the later one yeah buddy Mar marius goes to the states and becomes a uh, wizard if i'm not mistaken uh, that may or may not be a thing also that we discuss later but what we'll do before we get into spoiler territory is this to give you a brief reprieve we will have a synopsis from the voice of the cinema in french probably not and then we will have he's all thinking good looking and then after that we'll have our quick thumbs up thumbs down reviews which will be spoiler free then we will move into some gameplay which may or may not involve a mild spoiler of this film or other films in its orbit and then we get down to business there'll be music with the word getting down to business in it and you'll know that it's time that that business occurs and that business is spoiling the film so you've yeah that's been, how we do it you've been warned on all of that okay i now, is this gonna be uh, i know we've got a, a, a very music heavy uh episode we're doing next week but are we gonna kind of consider this sort of the end of the uh, good trash musical review a no. little bit okay all right I, I, just, I, yeah, I didn't think so either. Not over until it's over. Okay. All right. Well, this well, is the last proper musical we're doing now. Correct. And I think it's fun to end here because uh, Les Mis is a much celebrated production, one of the so longest gonna, running shows in history. We are going to do one more show? Yeah. We, we've got, There's always one more. Okay. There, yeah. Oh, Dustin, you're not getting out that easily. One more show. You can hear the Dalton talking, talking through your stereo. Talking, 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 talking. <laughs> talking, talking, talking. Radio. <laughs> it's very, very mean. 
I was just going to talk about how uh, I think it's fun to talk about this movie. I dreamed a dream that Dalton talked. No one has ever dreamed that dream. No, well, they don't it call it a nightmare. It's a nightmare. <laughs> yeah, that's, they, they don't call it a dream. That's right. Uh, okay, well, we'll talk about it later. <laughs> I'll wait till my turn, I guess. Well, we're going to get right to that. Let's go ahead and hear that synopsis from the voice of cinema. Mr. Arthur Gordon, if you would, sir, please. In 19th century France, Logan, who for decades has been hunted by the policeman Maximus, after breaking parole, <laughs> agrees to care for Catwoman's daughter. The decision changes their lives forever. <laughs> oh, thanks for that. Because she has to snatch the daughter from the evil Borat. Uh, <laughs> my wife! Sasha Baron Cohen does not sing the words, my wife, once in this movie. And it's a crime. Uh, and Bellatrix Lestrange. Oh, my oh. God. Yeah, this movie is just really stacked to the gills with uh, with notable performers <laughs> yes. who have done very different films. So um, I, the, I advocated for this movie quite a bit, so I'll say what I'm going to say as I always say it at the end. But I'm curious to hear what you gentlemen have to say because neither one of you had seen this before, correct? correct. I've seen it. Okay, Arthur I saw it in theaters. Oh, yeah. Arthur saw it in theaters. I had not. So I'm going to go to Dalton first then since you are the newbie virgin in the light. And uh, we'll hear what you have to say. Thumbs up, thumbs down review of Les Mis. Um, I had never seen any productions uh, of Les Mis, even being a theater kid in high school is just uh, look i was a i was a theater kid in high school man les mis was for lack of a better way to put it a, a, a girly musical and i already had enough going against me uh being super into theater that uh, i was like well I, I don't need to cross that bridge that's just gonna make life even harder for me uh so for whatever reason i never got around to it um i, I kind of resisted it a little bit i thought it was kind of hack and cliche um so I just never engaged with it for whatever reason, and because I was a dumb teenager who uh, cared too much about what other people thought. Uh, this is a fun show, and I, it's interesting to me, as I was saying before I got so ruthlessly dunked on by Dustin and Arthur, uh, it's interesting to me that this movie was kind of – had a mixed reception. Um, and I, I think a lot of that comes from some of the adaptation choices and bringing this from a stage show to a film adaptation. I, I think a lot of – the Hubble Blue, you know, around Russell Crowe's performance, a lot of, uh, you know, songs that got cut or shortened or, you know, just various adaptation choices uh, that Hooper made that weren't super popular, I think, was a big part of that. But again, I, I have no frame of reference for this. This is the only yeah. version of Les Mis I've seen. I liked it quite a bit. Um, it's too long. The, the end of the second act uh, and really especially the start of the third act are just a slog. There is, um, and we'll, we'll talk more about this as we get into more spoilery sections. Can you go ahead and mark those acts in your mind as far as events go? So what events begin the third act that you're talking about where the I guess begins? the second time jump. So there's three, two time jumps in this film. There is um, Jean Valjean in prison, uh, and then this kind of this prologue of him deciding what he's going to do with his life. Then we get a time jump to him being a factory owner, uh, and then he has to go on the run again. Uh, and ends up in the care of this child, and then there's another time jump. And these time jumps are both about uh, six, seven years. I think the first one's eight, and then it's ten or something like that. Something probably. like that, yeah. Yeah, so I, I mean, when I say the third act, I mean the, after the, the second time The jump. events leading immediately up to the revolution is what you're talking Correct. about as yeah. the sloggy bit. Okay, I just want to make sure that the the dear listener was aware of what where we were breaking our acts. That's that's totally fair. I just I was trying to avoid spoiler, but that's, that's a good way to talk about that without being too spoily. Yeah. When the film stops being just about Jean Valjean, Cassette, and Javert, um, it really just kind of drags for a while because all of the characters we give a shit about have disappeared. 
uh, and aren't really a big part of that final section of the film until about the last 20 minutes. I and, think someone forgot to tell Eddie Redmayne that the movie wasn't about Marius. Uh, Eddie Redmayne thinks every film he has ever been in is about his character. I have never wanted to punch anybody more than Look, Eddie Redmayne buddy, as I'm, a person. I know. And here's the thing. I'm I've, not talking about his character in this film. I mean Eddie Redmayne. Just Eddie Redmayne. I know. In general. I, I pride myself. See, I don't pick on people smaller than me. Friend of the show. Uh, I will. Nick Sanford and I. <laughs> Friend of the show, Nick Sanford, and I were talking about this the other day. We we kind of we both are annoyed by people who are like, "Oh, I don't like that movie." Oh, well, why not? Well, I don't like that actor. Oh, well, why not? I don't know. I don't like their face, and I don't. That always is a dumb reason, not like a movie to me. Yeah. But for some reason, Eddie Redmayne's the one person <laughs> who, when I see him, I'm just like, I get it. Ugh, yeah, I get it. Yeah. Ugh. And I don't know if it's it's a uh, if it really is his look or his just his like the way he carries himself in his yeah. performances. He carries himself like people I knew in high school that I don't like. Yeah, I don't know what it is. It just bothers me, and I don't know if it's the the, the roles he chooses to take. I don't I don't know what it is, but you know, Jupiter Ascending, uh, Theory of Everything, even 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 Theory of Everything. You know, this Oscar winning performance he did. I don't really love him in that. I'm much more interested in, in what's going on with everybody else in that movie. Um, so I just find him very frustrating, and that really takes the wind out of that that third act sequence uh, for me. Now, that said, you get uh, this adorable little street urchin whose uh, name I forget. Uh, Jeff Roche. Okay, there we go. Yeah, I, I've got Dustin here who's seen this movie several times, and uh, special guest Dustin's son who's sitting in attendance <laughs> listening, who also has uh, seen this movie many times, helping uh, fill in character names for us. Will not need to Google anything. If I don't know it, I guarantee he does. Yeah, look, I just refuse to remember character names when there's this many characters in the movie. Uh, Colette? Cacquette. Cassette. Comet. It's cassette. Whatever. Cassette, like the tape. Yeah, whatever. Uh, <laughs> that's such a good bit, by the way. It is. Um, so anyway, that section is kind of a slog for me. That said, I think the entire first, like, 80 minutes of this movie is knockout. I think it, it it's aces. From that opening uh, look down, look down number to um, I Dreamed a Dream and everything in between and really everything after that until um jean valjean goes and finds cassette uh, and then we get this fun number with sasha baron cohen and helena bottom carter that is just honestly one of the highlights of the movie for me it's, and santa it's, claus it's a hoot yeah it's very yes, funny santa claus um <laughs> that whole first again 70 80 minutes of the movie i think is a knockout i love it to pieces uh and then the movie just kind of goes to sleep for a while um but i think it really does stick the landing in ways that i really appreciate um, I, I want to give some love to Russell Crowe. Um, I like this real, uh, some of you might not know this. He is in a band, uh, called 30 odd foot of grunt or something. Just some real Aussie sounding ass rock band. <laughs> um, I like this rock opera singing this to, and I believe that was the way you phrased it. Yeah. Arthur was he's doing a rock opera delivery. Yeah. I like it. I, I he doesn't I have a lot of vocal range. He kind of does just sticks to where his safe notes are. I think he sounds great. I think Hugh Jackman he murders it. Yeah, uh, he's great, and obviously Anne Hathaway just brings Kills house it. down. Yeah. Brings house down. Oscar worthy performance. Super good. Yeah. Um, I, I think the blocking of the musical numbers, uh, both in terms of dance and camera work, is all really interesting. I like the kind of intentionally um, unrealistic visual nature of the film that also kind of smashes up against these very realist camera choices i I think there's a a lot of really interesting directorial choices going on that kind of 
highlight the fact that Les Mis is based on real events but is a total fantasy. And I, I think they use the form of the film to, to highlight that in really interesting ways. Um, look, it's got a it's got a lot of problems, and I'm not going to watch it again for several years because it felt like several years while I was watching it. Uh, that said, I think there's a lot to love here. I, I, I really do, um, and I, I can't wait to talk about it a little bit more. All right, well, thank you for that uh, middling review of uh, Les Mis. I would say middling to positive. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, we're, we're, we're certified fresh, but just barely on our thermometer it's here. It's like at a 60, 65. Yeah, 60, 65-ish range. 70? I'm, I'm going to say a solid three and a half out of five stars, yeah. That's oh, fair. Okay. Yeah. Well, I think Arthur, that's where I put it. You have been to this movie before. This is the second time, though. Yeah, I saw it in theaters. I saw it the warm when it opened. Um, and so I have seen it before. I have that experience. That's the only experience I have with it, though. I hadn't seen it in any other production format. Well, what was your experience with the rewatch? It's long. <laughs> it is. And, it's and long. It's long. For me, it movie never ends. Correct. Yeah. Um, uh, I, I echo a lot of what Dalton's saying, especially with that third act stuff and Marius and that whole. It's a slog, and I, I could tune out from about the ninety minute mark to about the two hundred ninety minute mark, <laughs> and uh, you know, I, 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 I would still be moved though by that final sequence yeah, when they do the big reprise of one more, uh, one day more. Because um, it's it's beautiful. There's a lot of great reprises. Yeah, just like uh, melodies that kind of re- crop back up throughout the film yeah, with the characters and stuff and yeah. things like that. Yeah. Um, but for me, it it peaks real. I forgot how early in the film Dream a Dream is, um, and there is so much raw emotional energy there that it feels like it peaks there. And I like stopped it to do something like pause it, and I'm like, oh, I'm in 30 minutes. Okay, well. It's a weird choice. Uh, yeah. And again, this is something that's going to carry over from the Broadway production. Yeah. This is not the film's mistake. Yeah. It's a weird choice to write a musical and have that big showstopper that early, right? Yeah. It's hard. I mean, it's hard to come back from that, too. I mean, to recapture that momentum that they've built that early on, is it's, it's a task. And I think it struggles to do that. Uh, I find myself more interested in this stuff with Jean Valjean and uh, Javert. I, I think Javert is just the most fascinating character in this film. Um, the struggle that he goes through this idea of law and grace and mercy and how that all interplays and that sort of legalism that drives his, his character is just fascinating to me. And so I, I greatly appreciate And I appreciate Crow's performance. I, I like that rock opera. It's emotionally wrought too, in a yeah. way that's really interesting. There's a, there's a lot of raw elements to this film. The, I mean, Anne Hathaway's performance when she does a dream of a dream. I mean, goosebumps every time. I mean, I had the uh, I bought the soundtrack, you know, to this when it came out or whatever, and I listened to it on repeat just because it's so raw and so emotional. And I, I her I, I know that they did this several times in a day, and I think that we saw like the fourth take, like she finally got to where she wanted it to get to, and it is it's brilliant. I mean, and and for me, this the movie never gets back to that level after that. Um, but yeah, the staging, the production design, this movie looks phenomenal. Uh, the way they create the sets, the the look down uh, s- sequence is breathtaking. Yeah, I have no idea. I, I, that the, giant French flag. The, the yeah. ways in which, yeah, they, they mash practical sets with, like, CGI wide shots is, yeah. is really well done. That one, uh, the one where uh, Fatine is running, uh, I think it's after she gets her, maybe... I think it's after she gets her haircut, but she's running towards that ship. Mm-hmm. And we get some really cool shots of that ship, and it has that kind of fantastical dark element to it, and it's really cool. Um, but, yeah, I mean, for me, I think it, it just has so much energy in that first 
maybe 60 minutes or so that it just kind of loses after that. And I don't know exactly where that momentum goes. If it is because we don't have uh, quite as interesting a character as Fatine to kind of follow. I mean, yeah, man, Jean Valjean is cool, but, and Jackman's great, but I mean, we don't, really have anything else for him to play off of for a while there. Yeah, Jean Valjean gets most interesting like later in the movie. You're right. And when Anne Hathaway's character leaves, she kind of takes a lot of the energy of the film with her, I yeah. think. And so it, for me, it just never recovers. And so I I, I like it. I, I think the revolution, uh, those guys get some really good music too, though. Um, the music is just great throughout. I just, the, the story's momentum. And I don't know if this is a carryover from the musical itself. Um, it just, it doesn't sustain itself long enough to keep my interest, and it's hard to come back from that. Fair enough, fair enough. Thank you very much for that, Mr. Arthur Gordon. I am um, going to be a pretty staunch defender of the film. I do agree that it is too long. Mm-hmm. Um, it does. And I think the reason why is it does in some ways diverge from the musical, and that is in part because originally this was a novel. And yeah. so there's uh, the, there's the original uh, Victor Hugo novel okay. from which it's you know do, drawing some of the source material that's left out of the play and sort of trying to harmonize some of those kinds uh, of things. Uh, a uh, rather large novel, uh, right? Famously huge, yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, just a slog of a novel, really. I mean, that's... uh, that's, Tolstoy-esque in length. Well, yeah, I mean, Tolstoy-esque is a good way to put it because Tolstoy is writing about the same time. So Russian and French novels of this particular time period are just massive. You know, look at The Count of Monte Cristo, you know, which is this... By Alexander Dumas, which is this huge novel. But if you look at the movie, the Jim Caviezel movie... uh, It's it's wild that all these authors took so many words to say, kill your masters. (laughs) I know, right? (laughs) Like, guys, it's three words. Chronicling every event of every day. Well, Karl Marx's Communist Manifesto is only 90 pages long. I'm just saying. Keep it short. Um, short to the point. What's the uh, So what's the runtime of the stage musical? Do you know? I don't know, but it's it, it's over three hours. Go ahead and say it out loud. What are you, what are you saying? Yeah, Isaiah? give him the mic. I, Isaiah Put that mic in his face. going to say something. It's about two and a half hours, maybe in between two and a half to three hours. Okay. Yeah, plus an intermission, which yeah. is right about what the movie runs. Yeah. Which is about the movie runs. Yeah, okay. I thought it was a little longer than that. Well, and I'm sure the, the film has a lot of, you know, cinematic, you know, moments of uh, quiet that are probably lacking yeah. in the Broadway yeah. production, for sure. Yeah. But uh, that so it's trying to do some of those things, and I think what you have to realize with cinema specifically in adaptation is you have to decide how you are going to tell your story, and I think the best story to tell is a story of Javert and Jean Valjean, and I think uh, I think you can keep all uh, you know Fatine uh, and what's going on with her as an interactive character where he's experiencing in uh, receiving and extending grace and mercy, those kind of things. And you can even even have the merriest story, but it's secondary to uh, a story about Jean Valjean, which would focus more on his relationship with Cosette. And so yeah. Cosette is the interest there and that's the problem, in protecting is, Cosette. Yeah. And it becomes the sort of side story that is it's 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 different. It's another thing. The the, the conversation about whether you uh, you know spend your life in the revolution or not is a very different sort of story. And and Hugo, I'm not sure entirely uh, melds these two together even in the novel, but does a better job there because he's got gazillions of pages to do so. They feel like completely disparate storylines yeah. and uh, it feels like uh, Cat, uh, Cuckoo Cuckoo just is not a character, and I don't think this story cares about her. And we'll talk more about this in analysis and the ways in which uh, women are used to advance men's uh, lives anon. Right. And you look, it, things are problematic sometimes, and they can still be beautiful, even with their problems. But I, I think that's a problem is that because that's not a character we really know anything about. 
And uh, for me, that's a big... I think you're right, though, Dustin. I think letting her be more of a character and her and Jean Valjean's relationship, letting that be a bigger part of the film would be a big help. Yeah, and so that's sort of my, my inclination there, is that, that, that it's, it's, it's just one of the difficulties of the adaptation. But as you guys say, the performances, I think, are very solid. The set design is great. I never do this, but I'm going to do it again. How about giving some love to costuming? For the love, the costuming is amazing in this movie. Yeah. And uh, so th- th- there's a lot going for it, you know, that's really, really solid. The music, as we've said, is great. You're singing it all the time once you're you're making up new words. Yeah, you have to sometimes. Uh, we didn't even talk to this, but, I mean, this outside of look down everything in this film is recorded live during production right that's a feat this is the first time it's been done on this scale it's amazing yeah yeah Yeah. and we talked a little bit uh about this last episode when we talked about the cross the universe where they also sang a a large majority of the songs on set but nothing i mean this is a huge undertaking to do yeah. that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and it's and it really does you know give a sense of realism and it wrestles with some you know interesting questions and we'll get to that in analysis. So I, I tend to like it, but I I think the reason why it gets soggy there is that it is throwing a, another narrative bit that needs to be better woven. Mm-hmm. That the movie would actually to do it well would actually have to be longer, which could indeed be a mistake but with what we have they should actually pull stuff out and make it shorter or make it longer and that way it, inter- it interacts on on a, on a more sort of um organic kind of scale it would just sense. have to maintain momentum better because again yeah up until about the halfway point i, I found myself thinking oh well this movie's just gonna fly by i was annoyed that i had to watch this long film but it's just moving and then it stops moving yeah, and that's fair. And so, uh, well, there you go, dear listener. Our biases are generally pro, but we have some issues and problematic issues uh, with the film. But we're not here to do this kind of stuff anyway. We're here to do analysis. So uh, more of that will be coming anon. But before we get into that, we want you to be part of the conversation with us all because we like movies anyway. We would be talking about this stuff with or without this podcast. But since we are doing so with the podcast, we do so because we want to have a conversation with you via those magical means that we all know as social media. So, Mr. Dalton Stewart, uh, Lord of the Media say the words about uh, what needs to happen so they can be part of the conversation. I will gladly do that, Dustin. Uh, Dear listener, if you want to be part of what we're doing over here, you can uh, first and foremost go to Twitter and get on us at good underscore trash. Um, The only place where you can get up in our mentions. Uh, Don't get up in our personal mentions. We don't want that. You can go get up in the show's mentions. We love it. We want to know what you think. We want to know what your uh, ideas are. We want to know what your your quibbles are. We want to know... what what you're fired up about? Uh, please, that's at good underscore trash for everything good trash media. Um, if you want to look down, look down, and always be a slave to Mark Zuckerberg. You can also <laughs> find us on Facebook. Look, here's the thing: I love that when the legend is more interesting, you print the legend, right? Film is a medium that has a tendency to kind of be what sets the historical precedent. Uh, I mean. Say what you will about Mel Gibson, but his film Braveheart kind of has defined what the pop- popular consciousness thinks of William Wallace. And that is why I am glad that the film The Social Network will always be what set the popular consciousness over who Mark Zuckerberg is, a little bitch who is so sad that uh, he was mean to a girl and she broke up with him, that he made a billion-dollar empire and is still a sad, sad little boy. Uh, so if you always want to be a slave to that nerd, uh, you can find us on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash GTM. We don't check it a whole lot, but... If you don't want to get on Twitter, totally understandable. Uh, you can reach us there. 
Um, if you want to be part of this show uh, in terms of helping us keep the lights on, that's going to be patreon.com forward slash GTM. All the info on how that's going to benefit you and benefit us is over there once again at patreon.com forward slash GTM. Uh, if you want access to all the archives for all the shows that we do and all the written stuff we do, that's going to be goodtrashmedia.com. Uh, last but not least, if this is uh, something you care about and love, just go talk to people. Um, you know, we don't, I wouldn't even know how to begin to advertise podcasts. So this really does just spread on word of mouth. And I know we're not the only podcast that tells you that, but keep it in mind. Um, there are a lot of people out there who love podcasts and frankly, far too damn many of them for any one person to ever be able to listen to all of them. So, uh, I think if you're a consumer of podcasts, part of the good work that you can do is, uh, let people know what you listen to. You don't have to, you know, beat them about the neck and shoulders with it, but, you know, just let them know what you're into so they're aware of other shows that are out there and uh, maybe you can help somebody broaden their horizons. Um, that was probably the quickest social media we've ever done. I'm, 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 I'm set. We're good. I'm glad for that. We minus should. that tangent you went off on Mark Zuckerberg. Well, for look, like two minutes. We all know that social media is Dalton's corner. But yeah, yeah, we do. And now it's my time to hijack the show. You know, it's now time for time What's to play that, the game. And we're back, and we're playing a game this week, and I've already forgotten what it is. What are we playing? Dustin, this week's game is going to be our... Shit. That's right. Top three <laughs> overall musical productions from Thank the you. Musical Review Marathon. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Brought to you by Les Mis. Les Mis. It feels like it's taken this entire marathon to watch. <laughs> Thank you, Arthur. I needed the assist there. I knew what game we were playing. I had forgotten how, how to we decided it? to phrase it. Yeah. <laughs> I had entirely forgotten so what we were doing. we're going to be looking at, we're going to pick our top three musical numbers from all the films that we've watched up to this so point. So just numbers. Yeah, one, two, five, seven. However you want to define yeah. it. They could be prime or square. <laughs> it's your call. Yeah, no, because next week's episode. The individual yeah. song. Exponents. Jack wagons. Yeah. Yeah. Next week's uh, film, it doesn't have any musical numbers proper. Per se. So we are going to talk about our favorite musical numbers throughout the course of this uh, several week long yeah, marathon. Starting with uh, Jesus Christ Superstar, I think. I mean, we could talk about Willy Wonk if you know anything. Candyman particularly lights your fire. Um, but uh, Jesus Christ Superstar. Uh, Little Shop of Horrors, Hairspray, uh, what is uh, across the universe in this? So okay, all right. So we're gonna go. Okay, so we're gonna go three, two, one order as we normally do. Correct. I, I'm a, I just like pretend like I even know what I'm doing at this point. So That's fair. Here we go. Um, number first, Mr. Arthur Gordon. What is your number third? I guess number first. You're confusing me. Pick of um, favorite numbers from the marathon. I'm gonna go to Little Shop of Horrors. I don't think this is the best number from that film musically, but it is the most interesting to me visually, and that is uh, somewhere that's green, uh, where Audrey is having her kind of American dream fantasy playing out in her head, and they're gonna, you know, li uh, sleep in twin beds in the same room, and they're gonna have this 1950s I Love Lucy style marriage, and two kids, a garage, and a white picket fence, and I think it's just a fascinating. Uh, fantasy that takes place within this film that tries to be a deconstruction of that era and of that dream and, and Audrey's just great uh, I can't remember her name, the performer's name I can't think of it off the top of oh, my head I can't. Vivian Green I think? Something, Ellen Green? Ellen Green, no Vivian is her character yeah, Pushing Daisies, pushing yeah um, but uh, she's, she just does a phenomenal job in all those songs and, and uh, it, it's not the most memorable to me but I think within the story itself and the way they 
put it all together and what it means to the kind of satire of the film, I think is one of the stronger plays. And I, uh, I, I really enjoy that one. It stuck with me. Excellent choice. I like that very much, Mr. Arthur Gordon. What do you say for your number third, number first pick, Mr. Dalton Stewart? Um, I am also going to be picking a number from from uh, Little Shop of Horrors, and it's going to be tied with a number from Les Mis. It's going to be Suddenly Seymour and I Dreamed a Dream, just two songs that are just filled with amazing vocal calisthenics and just pure emotion, and uh, I find them both completely jaw-dropping in, in terms of execution and uh, and just beauty. I, I think they're both beautiful songs. I think they're both beautiful filmed musical numbers. Um, and again, they're two totally different things. Suddenly Seymour is kind of simultaneously very sincere and also very kind of funny. Uh, and I Dreamed a Dream is legitimately just an absolute tear-jerking, uh, actively, intentionally tragic song. But um, they're just really lovely musical numbers and kind of operate similar in function in both of these films. They both operate as kind of a end of the stage setting. Suddenly Seymour does kind of take us into what Little Shop of Horrors is going to be about. And similarly, I Dream to Dream does kind of take us into what Les Mis is going to fundamentally be about, which is what's going to happen to Fontaine's daughter. Uh, so, yeah, those are going to be uh, my first picks as a tie. All right. My next uh, my or my first pick for musical number is eight. I like eight. Uh, I like that it kind of goes on forever. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it, there is it a has real, infinite possibilities. There's a real yeah. Ouroboros quality to it. Well, you yes. know, as the octave itself, it contains, you know, the note. Um, Are you done dicking around? Well, yeah, I guess so. You guys. <laughs> that joke didn't have much steam. Well, you no. guys started it. So, um, no, I, I, my first song we is um, got, to, got to Know. Got two, to... two men just owning this man in front of his son right now. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Dustin, when you brought your kid to podcast today, did you think we were going to beat you up in front of him? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Better us than him. He's Correct. got the reach on you. I think. Well, right. and here's the thing. His son will never get to do this because <laughs> you cannot beat your father in combat. I've tried. Ah, it's, it's, it's impossible. It's yeah. better to watch your father be bested by other people. That's a, yeah, it, it's, it's a poor substitute, but it's the closest <laughs> you can get, right? Um, what is your first pick? My, my first pick is, is the Got to Know, Got to Know My Lord bit from Jesus Christ Superstar. Oh, yeah, I just man. I love that sort of Gethsemane um, shouting at the heavens. Yeah. Um, I think the performance itself is fantastic. The camera work as he's working his way up the uh, mountain. It's got some interesting editing choices. That is Judas's number, right? Uh, no, it's uh, Jesus's number. That is Jesus' number. Which the, what's the name of Judas's number? Which one? That's uh, right around that same point where Judas is mad at God that he's having to want, be the one that does the dirty work. Oh, uh, was it that the damn for all time is the line, but, um, yeah. That's the number don't, I thought. Don't tell me, don't tell me. Okay, I thought yeah. that's what you were talking about. So this is the, the, the actual... The Jesus the thing. The praying in Gethsemane. Yeah, you're, yeah. you're, you're, you're good at when and where, but not so good on why. Yeah, you yeah, know, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, that Those lines. And I love that sort of the doubt and the wrestling and just the Gethsemane-ness that is sort of there in that and so uh my number third pick is uh get sent that uh, got to know got to know my lord a bit from jesus christ superstar so number next mr arthur gordon in the middle what say you for your picks for favorite musical numbers uh my second one's going to come from jesus christ superstar and forgive me i don't know the name of it uh but it's at the end uh, when judas gets to come back as a ghost yeah uh, which is just incredible um because judas is a rock star mm-hmm. um just his charisma the way he 
performs, his vocal range, he slays that movie. Yeah, he does. Um, and, and just the way that they are able to kind of reintegrate him into the film in this kind of apparition uh, format is, is just an interesting take on the story and dealing with kind of conscious and subconscious kind of things like that. And, and how about that Elvis suit? Yeah. Mm. That's fly. That's right. Mm. Well, only in the 70s. Yeah. Uh, I love it. I, I almost said the musical as a whole. Uh, because once it stops, it doesn't stop. Once it starts, it doesn't stop. Yeah. Um, and it just goes zero to 11 uh, in about the first five minutes. And it doesn't come off that high. And it is a great trip. Um, but I, I really think just almost anything that Judas does, uh, I think Dalton kind of alluded to that because all of his numbers are strong. Yeah, they're um, great. But I, I particularly like that. I think is it may be the crucifixion itself is when he comes back. I can't remember. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's right after the crucifixion he does. Is it yeah. the, oh, was yeah. it John 1941 or something like that? Is it that song? Uh, I don't know the name of it is, but it's that song where he's asking him, like, have you did? Why, why, I need to know this. You know, it's 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 got the same sort of thing. I've got to know, yeah. got to know my Lord, but it's like, have you thought about this? Why'd you do this? Why, yeah. you, you know? And and I forget the exact repeating line uh, that comes in it, but yeah, that's I I know exactly what you're talking yeah. about, and uh, it, yeah, it's a great bit. It is. So that would be my number next pick. All right, thank you very much for that, Mr. Arthur Gordon, Mr. Dolan Stewart. What's your number next pick for musical numbers? So I. I knew that I wanted to pick one from Jesus Christ Superstar, and here's the thing. That's hard. You can't keep copying me here. Look, Arthur, I'm not going to because I know – well, we'll see when we get to number one. I, I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm not going to. Uh, for me, though, it's um, – what's the – is it Jesus has got to die? What's the name of that first Pharisee's number? Oh, uh, it, it's something like Jesus has got yeah, to die. Yeah. That's going to be my pick because okay. that was the one where I was like, this movie can do no wrong. This Jesus must die. Yeah. This Jesus I, must die, yeah. Because that number, I, I was already into Jesus Christ Superstar when we got there. But when I saw those Pharisee costumes and heard the vocal deliveries, I was just like, oh. Super high tenor this, and super low bass. Yeah, yeah, I was like, this movie's perfect. This movie is a dream come true. So that's going to be my my pick. And it's again, it's as Arthur mentioned with his his pick um, from Little Shop of Horrors. It's not the best one. I mean, uh, Jesus at the at the temple smashing stuff. I love that one. Anytime um, the actor, I forget his name, the actor that plays Jesus in that film gets to really let those seventy like seventies. When he gets to let those rip, right? I love it. You're all in. But that Pharisees number, seeing those costumes and hearing the perform the way they're going to choose to sing those songs, I was just like, oh shit, this movie is it's perfect. Uh, so that's going to be my pick for number two. Excellent, excellent. Uh, my next pick is because of the way it is set up. It is such a great joke. And we, I've actually talked about it already. It is from Little Shop of Horrors, and it is the someday I'll be a dentist mm-hmm. line. Yeah. I, I just I cannot tell you how amazed I am because there's a musical transition from something of like a '50s ballad into this kind of calypso kind of beat thing. Steve Martin's performance is just hilarious. His character is despicable. There's a giant tongue puppet. There's a giant tongue puppet. Yeah. I mean, what what more? do you want but it is just too funny that you are this terrible sadist monster so what should you do you should be a dentist and which is just the the most bonkers off the wall thing i've ever it was it i just i laughed so hard at that moment it's just it's just it's just too perfect and so that's that's my number next pick it's just a good time too yeah it's it's one of the 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 funnest numbers in that movie for sure that's a great pick so number last mr arthur gordon what say you before dalton does it's i dreamed a dream yeah this song this performance is so powerful and and think about this this is like a just a four minute take on her face it's just you watching her. It's not a lot of cutting. It's not a lot of flair. It is just all Anne Hathaway. 
and she owns it, and you can feel her performance, you can feel her emotion. Uh, it's it's just a gorgeously written song as well, just the lyrics themselves, the music, but uh, the way Hathaway brings it to screen, and the way, I, and I think this is one of those instances where performing live really helps with that raw emotion, because you can see it in her performance, The you know, when she's crying and when she's weeping, and she feels it. And we fill it with her, and that's vital to that song's performance, and that it's uh, it's impact. Uh, and I get goosebumps every time I listen to it. And and I think it is the strongest of the film, and I think it's probably the strongest of the marathon. I, I, it's just a it's a beautiful song and a beautiful performance. You're absolutely right, Arthur. It's it's incredible. And that's a song that has just got some some notes that are insane. And she's like full on sobbing, at, and and still like maintaining yeah. a clarity of vocal performance that defies logic and comprehension. Yeah. it's it's badass. All right, well, thank you very much for that, Mr. Arthur Gordon. What is your number last pick, Mr. Dalton Stewart? So I'm not going to copy Arthur because obviously I already talked about my my love of uh, I Dreamed a Dream, and I feel like I'm going to be the only one to talk about this because you guys didn't love Across the Universe. Uh, but my favorite number is is going to come from Across the Universe, and after much hemming and hawing about which number it is going to be happiness is a warm gun cuz oh, it's so good it's stuck in my head like a week and a half later i can't there's a don't get me wrong there's a lot of good numbers uh joe cocker's come together uh very narrowly matched out it's amazing even bono's i am the walrus no, like yeah. there's some good ones but uh, i'm i'm going to go ahead and land on um joe anderson i forget the actor's name uh him and Selma hayek singing happiness is a warm gun uh, just because it's, I think the, the musical number in that film where the lyrical content, the character arc, and the visuals most perfectly line up. Um, th- that that trifecta scale is kind of skewed in one direction or another in a lot of the other numbers, but I think that's the one where they all really line up perfectly, and uh, it's a it's a showstopper. It's great. Excellent, excellent. I like that pick very, very much. Uh, my number first pick, number last pick uh, for favorite musical numbers is um, Do You Hear the People Sing from Les Mis. I mean, yeah, it is a song of people who will not be slaves again. I mean, this is this is what, you know, this is where the beating of my heart echoes the beating of the drums. I mean, that that happens, you know, with that bit. Um, just lyrically, it's very powerful the way it's used, you know, the spinning and uh, twirling barricades and the, there's just sort of the protest aspect of all of it. It just works so well, despite the fact narratively that section of the movie is perhaps the weakest. Mm-hmm. I love that song. I love that set piece. Now, help and- me out here. Where Where is that? Who, who's singing in this one? Uh, Marius is singing on it. It's the uh, revolution, essentially. Yeah. Do you hear the people sing? Okay, sing at the, the funeral songs of angry men. That's okay. That I love that whisper intro yeah. kind of thing they do on yeah. that too. I, I was yeah. making sure it wasn't the one with the little kid at the very beginning. Well, Gavroche does sing that as well. But I know. He, yeah, that's because I could kind of hear his voice as you were describing. Yeah, because he does. He does get in on it, but he's got that other bit where he's like, you know, we used to have. Uh, we what, what, not long ago we killed the king, and now yeah. we've got another one. And he's worse than the last. Yeah, that's know? the one I wasn't sure if you were talking. About. And I do and, love that song and too. It's like nothing street urchin, you know, voice. Yeah, having all these French people have these comically English accents is kind of a weird choice, but what are you going to do? But yeah, that is my number last pick, number first for my favorite musical numbers of the Good Trash Musical Marathon heretofore, although I hear we're going to do one more movie um, for the show or the marathon. I'm not sure which. We'll find out later. (laughs) But nonetheless, uh, I'm going to keep on going with that. Uh, We're going to move on, though, because I think maybe it's about time to get down to business. Say it's time for business, it's business time. Ooh, 
And we are back to do that thing that we love to do. That's right. We're going to bring you some analysis of Les Mis. I'm very, very excited to talk about all this good stuff uh, regarding this film. I'm going to open up with some of the biggies on the eye chart. So let's let's talk about 2011. Let's talk about Occupy Wall Street. Let's talk about Revolution and the ways in which this film at its time of production sort of has an interface with or makes commentary on the idea of people's revolt. What say you gentlemen? I mean, this film does kind of make the case, especially that number we were just talking about in our that as we were coming to an end on our our gameplay. Uh, Gashos, or however you say that kid's name, Gavrosh. Gavrosh's song about hey, didn't we just kill the king? Like it, it's been less than thirty years since we loaded up the aristocracy and the monarchy, and uh, you know, severed their heads from their bodies, and we just are doing the exact same shit again. That song kind of makes the case that the whole of human history is uh, the history of failed revolutions. Uh, it, it is a history of the common folk deciding they've had enough, getting rid of the upper class, and then the upper contingent of the common folk saying, we're the new upper class. Uh, we're we're going to party now. That's always what happens. It, it is the middle and working classes uh, coming together to overthrow the rich people, and then the middle class deciding they're the new rich people. That's pretty much what the the case that that song makes uh and i think that anybody who is a student of history will look at that and see that the shit bears out uh look at france look at us look at russia look at every country you can think of that has had a significant political revolt and overthrow and you will see a political revolt that ended up in oh what's the nicest way to put this counter-revolution Counter-revolution, uh, I was just going to say um, corruption okay. um, and uh, bad actors, actors in bad faith. Yeah. Um, and, and I think it's really interesting that this film is uh, full of that that really beautiful and earnest revolutions, re- revolutionary spirit being produced during Occupy Wall Street, a social movement notable for doing jack nothing. Uh, and don't get me wrong, th- there is something powerful about putting the idea of the nine- 99% and the 1% in the public consciousness. There is something powerful about that. There is something important about parking out in front of rich people's lawns and making them acknowledge uh, what is the cost of what they have. But that's just the start of a party, man. That doesn't change a damn thing. And I think that uh, Garrosh's song, uh, at the beginning of the third act of this film, is the anthem of Occupy Wall Street. It is, uh, hey, didn't we just, like, harass and harangue uh, everybody who has uh, taken advantage of the working class and then not actually hold them accountable for our grievances that we had? And, uh, again, I, I think this film, and that's part of why I don't, care about the revolutionary aspects of this film because the film doesn't the film cares about jean valjean and right. and his grace and um his internal uh turmoil and javert's internal turmoil um but i will say i think it's interesting that the film chooses to engage with that yeah i mean here's the thing and i don't know where i quite fall because I, I tend to agree i tend to think you know we we do these things and they work cyclically and with every revolution there comes counter-revolution uh with it comes uh, regressivism that there is sort of the cycle that neoliberalism gives birth to fascism which gives birth back to socialism which gives birth to neoliberalism and around and round and round we go and uh, and i and i think there is you know something very very true uh to that sort of cyclical nature but um a writer at the same time time of Hugo uh, thinking about these moments of revolution uh, is uh, George Hegel. 
and uh, Hegel talks about the uh, the grand sort of uh, trajectory of human history bending towards greater and greater liberty, greater and greater freedom. And that's a very fair point and something that you, you're, you're absolutely right. We do have to talk about that. Uh, I have a tendency to ignore those things because I get very frustrated. Uh, but you're absolutely right. I mean, you, when uh, you look at the grand arc of human history, there is less suffering worldwide than, uh, you know, when we uh, had to poop in buckets. Right. Yeah, no, I mean, things are better, you know. I mean, in, in many ways. In some places. In some places. I mean, not in all places. But, I mean, you, I mean, you want to go to Alabama in 1963 yeah. and come to Alabama right now. I mean, there's some problems in Alabama, don't get me wrong. But not to pick on but, uh, from Alabama. Morocco is probably uh, much nicer in, I don't know, like 700 A.D. Uh, perhaps you know. I mean, yeah. it depends on for whom. Spain and, was probably much nicer in like 1100 AD. Yeah, yeah, 11, yeah, yeah. 1100 that much better than it was in 1400. Mm-hmm. But it's better now than it was in either of those times. I don't know. I would make the argument that it was pretty good. Uh, there was a nice time there. Well, yeah, okay. I mean, yeah. but I mean, so there are exceptions in that kind of thing. But the idea is that are we getting anywhere? And is there any purpose in the protest? Yeah, is okay. there something that is useful? And I do think that any motion of the needle, as we said last week, is positive motion. Even if there are setbacks that follow it, the needle has gone that far, and that makes it so much easier for it to get that far again and go further next time. Right? And yeah, that for we, sure. ha- we have to look at these things in sort of long haul, um, marathon, um, human history, geological time kind of things. And I think Gavroche is uh, this voiced by a 10-year-old child, you know, which I think that does sort of help us see some of the perspective there as well. You know, that it's for a 10-year-old like, "Hey, we did this before I was born, right? Why are we doing this again?" Well, you know, turns out you sometimes you got to kill several heads of the snake before the snake finally dies. You know, and of course, uh, monarchy did die in France eventually. Eventually. Yeah. And so um, there's that. Okay, so that's the one big, big E. The other big E, the second E, is a G. It is grace. Uh, that is uh, the major theme. So the big moment that opens up the film is that Jean Valjean is a paroled thief who is taken in by a bishop and uh, you know a, a convent of nuns, I guess, uh, at a church. He leaves and steals the silver, is arrested on the way back. When he's brought back, the bishop lies for him says, oh, my friend, you forgot to take this too, that 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 here, you know, yes, I gave him all this. Yes, that's right. He, I did give it to him. And you forgot these two candlesticks that are even also part more, of the silver set, part of the silver set that are the most valuable pieces of the silver set. You forgot this stuff in your hurry. Don't forget to take that, too. And the idea and the challenge is go live a good life. Go do something with yourself. You can you can move forward. And uh, those candlesticks appear a lot in the novel. They continue to be sort of this recurring yeah. motif. Really? And, yeah. and uh, you, Well, you see them again later in the movie you do as see well. Them. Yeah. Whoa, I totally missed that. Where do they show uh, up? I know we see them in their apartment later in the film after Cassette's grown up. You see them. There's one in Cassette's room and there's one in Jean Valjean's room, if I'm not mistaken. <sighs> yeah. But he, you, you'll see them again in the he film. He kept them. The, the, yeah. That's the only – yeah. He, he sells oh. off the rest of silver to, to sort of make his fortune and get his life going, but he always keeps the candlesticks. And if I'm not mistaken, isn't the original Broadway? Jean Valjean, the bishop. Yes, the yeah. original Jean Valjean in thought. the Broadway musical plays the bishop yeah. in this film version, which is cool. Damn, that's so good. Yeah, yeah. oh, I love that. And so that's a great character moment. I, I, I love that moment when he uh, when he lies for him. I think there's something very powerful about that, uh, and just understanding, you know, because the kind of strict code that the religious you know live by. I mean, to understand grace and understand. 
giving somebody a second chance is is what you know Christianity is about. Right. Well, and especially the place of uh, the Catholic Church in France historically is yeah. not always a shiny one. Yeah. Having that character be the character that sets off this chain of events of being a reminding people like what it means to care for one another, I think is a really bold and powerful choice. Yeah. Just uh, narratively. Absolutely. So, you know, obviously Hugo's French Catholicism is informing that. But the other side of this coin, if you have grace on one side within the Christian system, the second side is that of the law, and that is Javert. And that Javert sees uh, 2609 as that, and that's all Jean Valjean. 24601. I, I never. Your, your son just, like, cut the hardest Eight. side eye at you when you missed that number 8675309. Um, uh, whatever, <laughs> whatever Jean Valjean's number happens to be. Uh, that That's all he is. It's he is that number. 90210. You and I were both ready to go. Oh, my. He's made that mistake, you know, and he's, and he's, he's, he's you know, jump parole or whatever, to, to, again, because, just so he can make a life for himself. Yeah. Um, because that you've just sort of marked for death at that point with as a parole parolee. Gee, that hasn't really changed now. No, has it? no, no. That's there's more some place the needle ought to move. They could you know maybe vote now. I'm just saying. Anyway, um, that being said, uh, Jean Valjean is constantly being hounded and being judged and counted guilty by Javert. And when given the chance to get revenge to execute Javert, rightfully so, because Javert has killed people at this point. He is wrong, yeah. Jean Valjean, and he is in the he's on the wrong side of all this stuff. Jean Valjean spares his life, and Javert can't live with it and yep. commit suicide, you know, there in the Seine, um, which is amazing, right? It's It threw me for a loop, man. That's the moment where I was like, oh, this movie's back. Uh, yeah. when, when, Jean Val, or, uh, when Javert goes undercover, gets caught, like that whole sequence was when I was back in the movie because uh, it just it totally swept me up in what's going on with Javert because – He's a character that simultaneously has – we get very little insight into his inner life and yet a great deal of insight, if that makes sense. Because we, we we get to know a lot of how Jean Valjean feels about things. We don't really know what Javert feels. We just know yeah. what he wants to do. Um, and it's that sequence of the film where we really kind of understand who this person is, right? Yeah. He's an interesting character because he feels – like you say, we don't get much – so he feels kind of two-dimensional. Mm-hmm. But then you realize like – he is the law. The law defines him. That's what, I mean, that's all he eats, sleeps, drinks, breathes the law. And it's what really defines him and fleshes him out. And and for him to try to cope with mercy and not understand that this street urchin who has, you know, he has butted heads with for 20 years or whatever it is at this point uh, is, is willing to just forgive him for, for everything uh, just to be the, you know, to be a good person. And he understands that Javert has a purpose, uh, and, and Javert can't wrestle with that. It's 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 heartbreaking, and it, it, it's hard to grapple with at times. The moment that I think really, I had because I, I kind of thought about after that, Javert kills himself. I was really thinking about who this character is, and I remember that there's that moment where you know they have their their sword and wood plank fight uh, at the hospital where Fontaine just died. Um, and he says, I'm just like you. I didn't, I wasn't born into law enforcement. I was also born in the gutter and I made something of myself. Why can't you? And that is where we come back around to the oppression of the middle class. There's probably a better way to phrase this. The middle class, the only way I can think to phrase it, but the oppression of people who have pulled themselves up by their bootstraps is often the most dogged and graceless because it is 
it is a person or people who f- see struggle and see strife and have risen above it and have a tendency to demonize strife and struggle when they see it because they have no sense. It's you have to kind of harden your heart to some extent to have ambition, right? Ambition requires a certain amount of closing yourself off and thinking, I just got to, I just got to bear it and get through it. And when you see other people not bearing it, not getting through it, not doing what you did, I, I got through it without stealing bread, Jean Valjean. Why couldn't you? Um, Javert cannot comprehend of a person's life who is different than his own. And it, drives him to kill himself and i thinking about that line really kind of like helped me kind of crack open who javert is as a character and he's a character who fundamentally cannot accept a system where people are given a shot at a second chance he cannot comprehend it and it's fascinating to me that this film so frequently ties uh religiosity and the law together um because that's where a lot of grossness happens. It is Laws are good. It is good to hold people accountable for bad shit they do. Religion is good. It is good to have people you can come together and celebrate your spirituality with. What is bad is when those two things get tied together. And yeah. the, you use faith and spirituality as a justification for uh, worldly damnation. Yeah. Um, that's some dark shit. Yeah. You yeah. fuse the sword and the cross together in the Christian sort of context or the sword yeah. and the crescent, whatever it happens to be. Oh, yeah. And that's plenty of faiths have done this throughout human history. And that's where things get ugly. And I think um, the film is suggesting and the novel is suggesting that the worst thing that could happen to a person is for them to pull themselves up by the bootstraps because then they do not have any capacity to give aid without expecting anything in return or receive aid that what ends up happening is there is this great intermixing between this idea of you know sort of a, a, a social situation in which we're all in this together and this sort of communalism perhaps socialism that we might be addressing and then this idea of a, a, a life that's not of reciprocity but a life that is full of just freely extended grace gift giving without anything expected in return gift giving when someone doesn't necessarily deserve or have earned it, right? And uh, there's a there's a great way in which this film, um, you know, again, does some of the best things that French Catholicism does. I think about the worker-priest movement of uh, the, the, right at the end of this uh, century and right in the first parts of the early 20th century, in which you begin to see uh, these priests who would take jobs in factories. Whoa. And, oh, you don't know about the worker-priests? What? No, I'm going to go ahead and assume most of our listeners are dipshits like me and also don't know. Oh, man. The, Tell me about the worker-priests. Well, I mean, they were, the, they were early socialist organizers in 20th century post-war. Um, post war and pre war France and uh, Paul Virilio. Uh, the when great. you say post war, which war were we talking World about? World War II. So, I mean, the, the big. You just said, what did you say, 19th and 20th or 18th and 19th? 19th and 20th. 20th century. century. Okay, yeah. my bad. So, the centuries that are following that. So, uh, the. the Victor Hugo's writing this in the 19th century. Okay, late right. 19th century? Yeah, late 19th century. Okay, and so, so the worker priests are beginning to happen. Okay, so we're talking about, like, the very start of the Industrial Revolution all right. the way to, like, the early 50s, right? Right, okay. Yeah. Cool. And so, and they're really taking off after in the post-war period. Wow. And so, yeah, these these priests would say, you know what, uh, yeah, we were, we're going to keep our, uh, you know, parish duties, but we're going to um, organize and work in factories, and we're going to organize, uh, yeah, yeah, worker priests are rad. Did you know about this, Arthur? Wow, this is wild. Yeah, worker priests are real rad. That is so cool. Uh, okay, sorry, I didn't mean to do like a class. 
Like in a tabletop game? Yeah, it does. Worker priest? Worker priest. It's well, a I'm, I'm multi-classing as a worker priest. <laughs> it, it, it's, it's a cleric, you know, who's also got some fighter sort of... Uh, yeah, that's, yeah, that's a cleric. It's a... Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Got, got fighting magic users. Cross-class, yeah, yeah. Fighting magic user, yeah. Oh, and, I love it. And they, they hold... Well, more like bards, right? They hold signs mm-hmm. and they do protest. Now we're having fun. Oh, man. I got D&D up in here. Um, guess what class I am. Anyway, so, move, moving on. But, yeah, it, it's a great way it sort of mixes those sort of ideas that there is a sort of really left socialist um, aspect too much of French Catholicism. Uh, and, and, I, and I do like the way in which the film addresses that. Let's move on, though, and, and talk about one last thing. Uh, and I think this is important because I want to do some formalism and some style stuff uh, with the film is its use of live take performance for the singing. And the singing is not as polished. It isn't using the sort of cast album uh, post-dubbed. I mean, Jesus Christ Superstar is a good example here. That the, the, the music is great, don't get me wrong. But it is definitely cast album, studio-looking stuff. That is not the way they sounded when they were singing just outside of Tel Aviv when they uh, filmed that particular film. This, on the other hand, is recorded right then, so the timing is different. The piano's got to keep up and back off, and then yep. they'll score it later. And that um, sometimes there are warbles in the performance, especially Ian Hathaway's performance of uh, I Dreamed a Dream, uh, which adds to its power. Yeah. But all of that is done in the service of realism. And so what I want to ask, first of all, is just how do, how well does this film achieve a sense of realism, or is that simply just one gesture towards it? And what does good realism in film look like to you? I th- – um. I don't know that it always works for me here. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think there are elements. I think the live recording helps add this kind of raw emotional level to all the performances and the vocals and things like that. Um, but a lot of the look of this film is so polished. Like there were shots that looks too much like a music video to it's me. It's too stagey. Uh, when we're doing a lot of those kind of location shots and we see a lot of the people in the streets and things like that, it feels real music video, uh, video-y to me. Um, but things like, you know, Anne Hathaway is getting her hair cut for real – on set, you know, she's got her actual barber there cutting her hair when they do that sequence. And so things like that are really interesting, but I don't know that it helps, especially with some of this, this the the scope of Look Down mm-hmm. kind of takes me out of it and kind of builds this world. And, and even when Anne Hathaway is doing, uh, running down uh, the Lady of the Night, whatever that song is called, um, when, you know, she's running down to the ship, the boatyard, the docks or whatever, uh, all of that has this kind of gothic fantastical element to it that doesn't necessarily feel as real. Now, later in the film, I think it kind of shifts. I think that kind of visual tone shifts as we progress into the film. Mm-hmm. But even something like uh, the the innkeepers, uh, the best innkeeper in town, right? right? Uh, the, the Santa Claus thing uh, is... is fun but a lot of those things kind of take me out as far as that realism so i don't you know does the gesture towards realism does it support in any way or is it more of a uh, sort of an add-on appendix to the film the I, I, yeah i think it's an add-on i don't you think it's more appendix okay yeah I, I just i think there's i in comparison to some other you know especially some of the other you know uh movies we watched in this marathon uh, I think there is kind of a more realistic element to it just because I think of the drama that we're seeing. And, and some of these performances, like I said with Anne Hathaway, it's just, you know, it's it's when we see a dream, uh, dream of a dream, it is just that kind of single shot on her. And we get a lot of that kind of looking into the camera type of stuff, which I think also kind of takes me out of the film. Mm. Um, I think in, uh, I don't remember if it's Look Down or if it's the, it's the one where he's praying, I think. He's looking at the camera, you know, early on in the film. Yeah. And I 
think that kind of takes away from that realism as well. But uh, that's just me. I, I'm kind of with you, Arthur, because I feel like um, there's a lot of... Uh, we talked off air, there's some kind of Paul Greengrass-esque uh, camera work in some of the battle scenes, but that only serves to underscore the fact that we are very clearly on a soundstage. Um so I, I think when the film, whether intentionally or not, I, I couldn't say, but I think when the film makes gestures towards realism, I think it only serves to highlight the unreality of other aspects of the film, which to me I think is is a place where realism can honestly be best used, is when you use it to underscore the inherent unrealness of cinema. Yeah. Um, well, I think of Children of Men. I was honestly yeah. I was just about to say that, yeah. yeah. Children of Men does it so effectively by saying, well, this is set in the future, and obviously we don't know what's going to happen because the future hasn't happened yet. And it really, by setting it in a science fiction narrative, it is intentionally embracing that unreality, uh, but then bringing in that realism from something like Itumama Tambien, which is still kind of dreamy and... You know, you've got this omniscient narrator who knows things it couldn't possibly know. Uh, it marries uh, just Quran's filmography is about marrying reality, uh, re- film, real film realism, and kind of the unreality of movie making. Uh, and I think that's done much more effectively in those films than it is done here because I, I can't really. And you know, maybe if we watched it several more times and you know talked to Tom Hooper and you know if we really cracked open Les Mis, we could probably figure out what the intent was. But for me. I can't really place my finger on what the intent is because uh, I feel like the unreality of something like look down, look down and the realism of I dreamed a dream. And, you know, and again, plenty of other musical numbers throughout, there's just kind of a, a confusion there and it's, it's unclear what some of that, those flourishes of realism are intended to be for. It's kind of confused in, in form, I guess I would say. So do you guys tend to think that the long takes with the handheld camera in, say, Quran does achieve a greater sense of realism than the long take? Well, than rather the handheld camera, but shorter takes we find in Les Mis? For me, yeah. I, I, I think... Or, P, or Peter Greengrass. I think know. traditionally, yeah. I think the long take does work better for that purpose. Uh because it allows you, I think, to become drawn in, and the constant, you know, cutting and the kind of shaky cam stuff, I think, helps to take you out and ground you and, and realize what you're doing. But I don't, I don't necessarily know that's always going to be the case. I, I, I think some long takes, you know, depend, it's depending on how they're used. Even, mm-hmm. you know, I think Spectre opens with a glorious long take, but I mean, it's almost, a, I mean, it's more of a stylistic choice. I don't think it, it, was it something makes like, it realistic. Yeah, something like The Revenant, which is you know kind of known for its excessively long takes. Birdman. Yeah. yeah. Doesn't do anything for me in terms yeah. of realism. In fact, those films use those long takes to serve an unreality yeah. almost by design. So I, I think it really does come down to uh, form and intent of the yeah. cast and crew. Yeah. Yeah. And for my money, I mean, for me, realism is uh, natural lighting and, uh, you know, understated acting. I mean, that's really the two things that you need for it to look like realism to me. And I, I really don't care about the um, – whether it's on a tripod or it's a tracking shot mm-hmm. or it's a handheld camera. Um, and so I, I think the use here is a gesture towards realism, but it's in this hyper moody lighting and these hyper stylized sets. Even yeah. even when it's just, you know, very much a close up of Fontaine. Uh, uh, I can't say Joan it. Fontaine? Yes, Joan Fontaine's <laughs> face. Um, Anne Hathaway's face. <laughs> Fontaine. Fontaine's face. Um, when it's, even when it's just that, it's still very, very, you know, Design and it yeah. does feel that you know sort of you know again hyper reality yeah. that um, you know does 
I, I think it's effective and it's fine, but I don't I don't think it achieves a realism, even though her performance is much more like a person on the set doing the song rather than someone in a studio singing. Yeah, and we've talked about this several times throughout this marathon. I mean, musicals by their nature are anti-realist, and yeah, I, I, I think, think so. it's hard to bring that element into play when you're dealing with something like you mentioned with this kind of hyper-realism. Well, and especially a story that ends with uh, an angel slash ghost showing up to yeah. ferry one of the leads to the afterlife, which, again, is a moment that is just utterly heart-shattering in its beauty and its poetry, but it's that kind of, um, oh, what's the, the the untruth, or what am I, what am I thinking of here? Um, I can't remember who said it, and I can't remember the actual words they used to say it, but uh, emotional truth or uh, static truth shit. I was going to say psychological realism. No. Because I, that's where I was going to end up going. But I, uh, Man, it's too, it's too bad I'm not as smart as Dustin because uh, I know he would know what I was talking about if I could explain it better because it's something he talks about all the time. Uh, but the idea that sometimes the truth in storytelling is by doing things that are not true. Are by doing things that are very unrealistic, by embracing that anti-realism, you can get at a more honest emotional truth. I think this is this might be a Herzog thing. Mm, okay. I can't remember who who it is. There's there's somebody that you love that talks about this all the time. It's not Jack. Who gives a shit? It's not important. <laughs> what is important is by embracing unrealism, you can sometimes get at something that is very emotionally true. Do we know that uh, a dead loved one or a dead important person is going to show up as you're dying to ferry you to the afterlife? I don't Nobody knows. That said, what we do know is that loving other people is really important. And um, at the end of the day, um, the only thing that is going to salve your existential dread about why you exist and whether or not you matter is looking to the people in your life um, and trying to be good to them and trying to bring them happiness. Uh, and I think that's what... I think that's why uh, as many wonderful lines as Sasha Baron Cohen gets in this film, I, I chose to open uh, the show with that quote from mm -hmm. Jean Valjean because that is kind of the thesis statement of the movie. It's not all this, you know, stuff about the June Revolution and characters like Epony who, um, while having some of the best uh, vocals in the film, end up just getting herself shot to save Eddie Redmayne's dipshit, weird, smug-looking face. That's such a sad character. That's a sad oh, character is. raised by abusive... Ebony is great. She's got some of the best songs in that part of the movie. Mm -hmm. But she has abusive parents, is in love with a guy who doesn't love her back, and yeah. gets herself killed to save a guy who doesn't really seem to care about her. It's a shame. Yeah. And that's a, just a really, really sad thing that happens in this movie. Yeah. And yet, what the film does end up being about is not those characters. It's not about the revolution. It is about just trying to care for the people around you. And when you make mistakes like firing one of your employees and leading to their death by tuberculosis, trying to make amends and extend love and mercy wherever you can. And uh, for me, the moments of unreality in this film, like that final sequence, are the moments that work best. Yeah, and I think what happens with the realism of the musical performance, it does get us at a, a psychological realism. Okay. It, do, it does help us to reflect on this is what they're feeling. And so by it being less produced and less, you know, again, sort of aestheticized in terms of its singing, the realism of performance does not get us at a realism of story or narrative, but rather realism of emotion. Well right? said. Yeah. And uh, so that's that's what I see it being useful as. But I think for actual proper realism, uh, look 
look elsewhere. Um, and uh, so there you go, dear listener. Well, we've had a fun conversation about Les Mis. Yeah, we haven't even talked about the fact that, uh, and probably we're not going to get to talk about the fact that uh, Jean Valjean. Uh, moving on. Ooh. Wow, wow. Ooh. That's uh, whatever Eddie Redmayne's character is. Mo- Marius. Marius and Jean Valjean just kind of decide what's best for Cassette without uh, really referring to her at all. Yeah, well, it was is. the 19th century. It, I know. But she doesn't get much agency, and no. that is troublesome. She has none. Zero. Yeah. Um, and neither does Epony. Uh, no. But all the women in this movie uh, have decisions made for them by men or are murdered or Helena Bottom Carter. I was going to say Helena Bottom Carter is the kind of... Yeah, she's the only she one She wears the pants in her house. And she's a criminal. Yeah. Yeah, well, so, so that's what happens when you um, take charges. You become a villain. Yes. That's, uh, that's, that's what uh, this late uh, 19th century French novel would lead me to believe. So maybe things are getting better. Are they? I don't know. This well, movie was made in 2012. So. Well, I mean, the movie was is made in 2012 reflecting those values. I mean, clearly that's not where we are now. Uh, Should we it? have flipped the script? Should all the men been played by women and oh, all the women played by men? I'd watch now, that, that is an interesting days. movie. Who, buddy? Anne I want to go Hathaway see that production. as Jean Valjean. Kate Blanchett as Javert? Uh, no, Helena Bonham Carter as Javert. Oh, I like that. Mm. Arthur, you should just go be a theater director and Man, put on a like revisionist pro- idea. I'm out. Yeah. <laughs> And so ends Arthur Gordon's tenure on the Good Trash Genre cast. He will be missed. Uh, you can catch his uh, gender swap performances uh, and productions of A Few Good Women uh, at your local community theater. <laughs> Silence of the Rams. <laughs> uh, oh. oh, my goodness. Okay. Well, uh, I think we have come to the point of the show where we must render a verdict regarding Les Mis. Show for trash. Elsewhere instead, I go to you first. Dalton Stewart. Show for trash. Elsewhere instead. Les Mis. Go. I'm going to say shelf. I I think it's a mess. This film is an absolute mess. And yet I think I think it's a, it's fun for just the feat of trying to film all of this singing live. Um there are a lot of people who have argued and including Matt Singer who I love has argued that's actually one of the biggest weaknesses of the film. Uh for me, whether it works for you or not is almost irrelevant. I think keeping this film around in your life um, just for the idea of it, just for t- Tom Hooper and company having the audacity to put on this film. Yeah, I, I think there's something there. And again, I think the emotional beauty of this film uh, cannot be understated. Um, and again, there's a lot of peaks and valleys, but between I Dreamed a Dream, um, Javert's Suicide, and the end of the film, that, for me, sells it and uh, makes me want to watch it again at some point in my life. So I'm going to say Shelf. What should you pair with it? Um, let's let's look at some great uh, performances. Um, let's look at Anne Hathaway and Colossal, which um, is Anne Hathaway getting to do comedy, which she doesn't get to do very often, uh, but I think is a performance that is still full of emotional truth. Uh, let's look at Hugh Jackman's great performances. And look, I know we talk about this movie on this show all the time, but go watch Logan, uh, cause it really is an amazing Hugh Jackman performance. Uh, and I think pairs with, uh, the performance of Jean Valjean in really interesting ways. Uh, I think if you, you think about, uh, these characters, just again, because, uh, Jean Valjean is always playing older, um, you know, just cause of the time jumps in this film. Um, Hugh Jackman gets to play an older character throughout Les Mis. Um, and I think looking at those performances in tandem is, is just kind of interesting. Um, and look, you know what? Go watch Jupiter Ascending. Uh, you have to deal with more Eddie Redmayne, but it's another weird film that doesn't always work that in spite of itself is worthwhile. 
So those are going to be my pairings for Les Mis. And thank you very much for that, Mr. Dalton Stewart. Okay, Mr. Arthur Gordon, what do you say? Shelf for trash, else or instead, regarding Les Mis? Oh, this is a tough one. Oh, I think I'm going to say trash very slightly, just very lightly putting it on top of the trash bin. You've made my child cry. I know. I'm so sorry. I'm an evil person. Um... You're not in any way sorry, and that's okay. Yeah. Uh, anyway, uh, what you watch instead of this film, um, when you're talking about cassette and eponine, I, I think a lot of doubles. Mm. And, you know, uh, Valjean and Javert, this, I- this idea of doubles. And I don't know that you think of anything uh, more so than doubles than with Hitchcock. And yeah. I want to say Vertigo. Nice. Um, uh, when you talk about uh, Javert and this kind of not understanding anything but the law, I, I just watched this movie, and I think Doctor Strange kind of works here when you look at Mordo and, uh, you know, his his nice play dealing with uh, law and legalism and those kind of ideas of philosophy. Uh, but finally, uh, I don't know that you can deal with truth, uh, grace, and a law uh, more so uh, than you deal with uh, Tree of Life. Oh, wow, yeah. Uh, so I think Tree of Life. The way of uh, nature and the way of grace. Yeah, I, I think uh, that is a pairing uh, that must go with Les Mis, else or instead, is Tree of Life. I like that a much. I, I like that very, That's very a much. really good pick, yeah. Arthur, yeah. Very, very solid. Uh, I'm going to say Shelf. I like this movie a lot. And we know. It, I mean, yeah, and it's already on my shelf. Hey, now that we've done an episode about it, can you stop talking about it all the time? Probably not. You know why? Why? Because he gave him the candlesticks. He gave him the Damn candlesticks, man. I mean, he gave, and then he kept the candlesticks. And then he basically gave candlesticks to Javert. And you know what Javert did with those candlesticks? He killed himself with them. Yep. <laughs> and he shot himself. Yeah, he in melted the head. them down for silver lead <laughs> <laughs> and shot himself with candlesticks. That was that. So, yeah, I'm going to say that. Uh, I think uh, movies that wrestle with the idea of grace and uh, just the giftedness and celebration of gr- grace. Babette's Feast is a great little film about the extending of grace. It's got some French connections, some uh, Lutheran connections. It's interesting and beautiful. It is food porn and it is a good time to be had by all. I think you ought to take a look at Calvary, um, starring uh, the the uh, his name is not going to come out of my head right now. Brendan Gleeson. Brendan Gleeson, thank you. You're welcome. Redheaded guy that looks a lot like Arthur. I looked at Arthur and go, his name's Arthur Gordon, but it's not Arthur hmm. Gordon. I can uh, take that. Yeah. Um, I can live with that. So, um, uh, starring not Arthur Gordon, uh, Brendan Gleeson. And uh, take a look at that because it's a great film and uh, it's a great sort of exploration of this idea of grace. So, uh, do that. Um, those are my recommends for that. I hear we're going to do one more episode. I guess so. Well, we're going to do one more episode in this marathon. Oh, okay. You were going to do at least one more episode of the show. Okay. And now what am I going to do next? Well, I've found uh, this bank that uh, is going to have quite a bit of payoff, but I need some people to work with me. I'm going to need, uh, I'm going to need uh, a heavy uh, who can handle a gun. I'm going to need a distraction. And I'm going to need a baby-faced driver. I have uh, very nice legs. That can handle the wheel. Uh, so get your queen ready. Uh, get your favorite soundtracks ready. Get your iPods ready. Because uh, next week, uh, we're going hard with Baby Driver. Just bandanas and sunglasses, as it's far mus- as the eye can see. It's a musical, but it's literally a jukebox musical. Oh, indeed. You know, quite literally, without, you know, the actual singing. So, yeah, it's going to be lots of fun. We're going to take a look at that. Take a look at this film or any other film and have a conversation with somebody you care about because that's what really makes watching the movie so worthwhile. You keep watching. We'll keep talking. We'll see you all next time.
I dreamed a dream in time gone by. Thank you for tuning in to the Good Trash Genrecast, brought to you by the Good Trash Media Network. For all things Good Trash, tune on over to GoodTrashMedia.com. Our intro music is made by a friend of the show, Aaron Rodgers, and our outro music is I Dreamed a Dream, performed by Anne Hathaway. I dreamed that God would be forgiving. And I was young and unafraid And dreams were made used wasted There was no ransom to be paid No song and song, no wine untasted But the tigers come at night With their voices soft as thunder As they tear your hope apart As they turn your dream to shame He slept his summer by my side He filled my days with endless wonder He took my childhood and his stride But he was gone when autumn came And still I dream he'll come to me That we will live the years together That cannot be And there are storms we cannot weather I had a dream my life would be Thank you.